Thank you, Andrew. Well, I encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 59. As we begin, though, I want to remind you of Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1 and 2, where Jesus gives us an incredible invitation. He says this, Come, to ev- come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. That's a wonderful text that speaks about a very generous God. Only this generous God can truly satisfy the deep longing desires of our heart. This text in Romans or in Isaiah 55 is so inviting, so refreshing, peace, joy, deep satisfaction are promised to whoever responds to Jesus in faith. And then in Isaiah chapter 57 verse 15 we're told, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place. And also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So, God's Rich mercy is abundantly evident in the life of the one who is broken over his own sin. If you remember in Isaiah 57, verse 18, the Lord says, I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. God God knew well my sin, and it wasn't pretty, but God chose to bring healing in my life. That is truly God's amazing grace. And so the overall message of Isaiah is to trust the God who saves. Our theme verse is Isaiah 12.2 that says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. So throughout this whole book, again and again and again, the Lord is calling you to trust the Lord for your salvation. Now, here today, I want you to consider this, that when I say salvation, I mean both our justification and our sanctification. The Bible teaches us that we are justified by faith in Jesus. By faith in Jesus, we are forgiven and counted righteous. The righteousness of Jesus is imputed to our lives. Uh, it's, it's credited to our lives, and we are accepted by God in Christ. We stand in God's favor. His grace is upon us. We have peace with God. And this happens at the very moment of our conversion, when we were born again and put our faith in Jesus for the very first time. So, When we're saved, we are justified. But also, when we are saved, we begin being progressively sanctified as well. When we are being progressively sanctified, the character 
of our lives is in the process of becoming more Christ-like. The, the fruit of the Spirit is growing in us. More and more, we are living holy lives as we eagerly anticipate glory. So, justification and progressive sanctification are in fact two different things, but they're connected. You, you can be progressively you, excuse me, you can't be progressively sanctified without being justified. And if you are justified, you will be progressively sanctified. For both of these, you are called to trust the God who saves. The process of being progressively sanctified requires us to trust the God who saves. But for, for both of these... Um, they can be hindered by our sin. Our, our sin can be stubborn. Your, your love for sin may in fact keep you from being converted to Christ in the first place. And your love for sin may keep you from being progressively sanctified as God would want. And so chapters 58 and 59 are written for the purpose of exposing our sin. Andrew very appropriately already acknowledged this is not a fun section of Scripture, but it's a needed section of Scripture. There, there is no salvation without a knowledge of our own sin. Uh, th these two chapters give a call to us to repent of our sin, e either for the very first time our justification, or as a result of God's ongoing work of progressive sanctification in our life. I began last week by asking, is God ever offended by your religious activity? And in chapter 58, we learned that yes, God is not pleased with your religious activity when it's filled with hypocrisy, when it's filled with self-serving desires, or when it lacks love for God and love for others. True worship that pleases God will not ignore the poor, will not ignore the oppressed. And this true worship flows from a new heart that only God gives, a heart that truly delights in God above all things. But that doesn't mean... Progressive sanctification is a cakewalk. In fact, one commentator, Barry Webb, states this, and I quote, Repentance does not come easily to any of us, and it is hardest of all for people who have been accustomed to using religion as a cover for their sin. When their prayers go unanswered, they find it easier to blame God than to take a long hard look at themselves. And it's in that context we come now to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 59. Here we're reminded that God is not the problem. Verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or His ear dull that it cannot hear. So God is not the problem. God is able to save. The Bible is full of examples of what God has done to save 
His people. In the Old Testament, God miraculously saved Israel from slavery in Egypt. God, Egypt was the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, but God chose to deliver Israel from their grasp in a way that displayed His glory. God used Joshua to lead the Israelite army in to conquer the land that God had promised. The, the young shepherd boy, David, killed the powerful and skilled warrior Goliath with a slingshot and a stone. That, that manifested the power and the glory of God and His willingness to save. Think about Daniel being thrown into the lion's den and God saved him miraculously. Think about Jonah running from God, thrown into the deep sea, and God mercifully saved him. Think about um, the New Testament as well. Um, and, and when you do think about the New Testament, how can you not be amazed at how God saved Saul? Saul was a, a, a violent man. He, he was on this relentless mission to imprison and kill Christians. But God saved Paul in a dramatic way on the road to Damascus. Paul went from persecuting Christ, hating Christ, and hating his followers to becoming a great champion of the church of Jesus Christ. Think about Peter. Peter went from denying Jesus three times to being willing to lay down his life for Jesus. The, the writer of Hebrews says this in chapter 10, verse 34, For you had compassion on those who were in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. So here were people going through a lot of suffering, and they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. Those are things that only God can do. That heart change is what only God can do. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Praise God for that reality of a redeeming God. Things that only our God can do. God's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. So, if God is not the problem, what is? What, what, why don't people change? What, why aren't people transformed? Verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. So, for the person who is unregenerate, it's clear that sin separates them from God. So the prayers of an unregenerate person will not be heard unless it is a prayer confessing sin with a contrite and lowly spirit, unless it is 
a prayer crying out to God for salvation. That's, that's easier to understand. But verse 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. People who belong to God. <laughs> this is where it gets messy. And I wish it weren't messy. I wish when someone is born again, they are completely and totally transformed in a day. I wish that a person who is counted righteous by faith was actually in experience always righteous. But that is not the case. Justification is instantaneous. Sanctification is a, is a process. It's progressive. And it's this progressive nature of sanctification that can get messy. Now, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as a weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of God, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Interesting. Instruction here given to a Christian husband so that his prayers or his worship are not hindered. So we can be counted righteous in Christ. We can be counted righteous in Christ, but still sin. And when that happens, God addresses not just our behavior, but what is going on in our own heart. And so the Holy Spirit will convict us when we sin. The Holy Spirit will call us to repentance when we sin. God's interested in you being sanctified more and more. Remember, it was the Lord who said, I dwell in a high and holy place. And and also with Him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. If a believer sins, you, you don't stop being a Christian. God doesn't stop loving you, but the Spirit of God may be grieved by your sin. That impacts your walk with Christ. Paul says to the believers, Paul says to the believers in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30 through 32, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, yes, you, believers, can grieve the Holy Spirit. Uh, Hebrews 10.29 says that if we continue, as believers, if we continue in our sin deliberately, we can even outrage the Spirit of grace. We can grieve the Spirit. We can cause outrage in the Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, 19-22 says, Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. 
Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That's the responsibility of believers. But, but notice too, the very next two verses in that passage, it says this, Paul says, as he closes out that letter in Thessalonians, now, may the God of peace Himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. <laughs> wow! I love that promise. Don't, don't quench the Spirit. Hold, hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. There's a war going on. But what is it that really gives us hope in that war? It's the fact that God is faithful and He'll finish the work that He started in us. He will sanctify us completely as believers. We can expect that to happen. Hebrews 12.1 exhorts us then, says this, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And if we don't do that, we should not be surprised if we don't experience loving, fatherly discipline from our Heavenly Father. Listen to Hebrews 12.5 and 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. And the, the writer goes on to tell us how this discipline from a loving Heavenly Father seems unpleasant at the time, but it's really for our good to produce in us good fruit for God's glory. So if you are a believer and you're not growing and changing, don't blame God. God is not the problem. What this passage teaches us is that sin is the problem. The stubborn, deep-rooted habits of the flesh in verses 3-8, through eight, Isaiah elaborates on what he means by that. Verse 3, For your hands were defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one that is crushed, a viper is hatched. Their webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity, and deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil, and they are swift to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, desolation and destruction, are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know, and there is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. It, this is not a pretty picture. <laughs> Violence. Lies. Perversion of justice. Hearts set on evil. Ruin and destruction. Destruction. 
No, no peace. Not, not, a, not a pretty picture. Barry Webb asked the question, can, can these be the people of God? And yet, which of us, Barry Webb goes on, and which of us who has had the courage to look into the depths of our own hearts has not found such things lurking there? The, the mirror which the prophet holds up shows us ourselves as well. And as we read on, it is as though we have entered a dark tunnel. And here is the rock on which God's good and loving purposes must surely founder. The, the desperate wickedness of the human heart. It breaks out again and again like some deep-rooted infection and ruins everything. R religion cannot cover it up. and We cannot face it, and it makes even God hide His face and turn away. What can we do? but weep, end of quote. Paul articulated this very struggle in Romans 7, verse 14 through 24. Listen to what Paul says. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So, God's law is not the problem. God used His law to expose my sin and your sin. Verse 17. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? That's the Apostle Paul. Wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So if we have eyes to see the holiness of God, and we have a willingness to look honestly at our own sin before our holy God, it will lead us to cry out the same thing, wretched man that I am. And that's what we have in Isaiah 59, verses 9-15. through 15. Here Isaiah speaks for the people and gives us a, a humble, honest look in the mirror that leads to Lament. A, a lament is a faith-filled, heartfelt, passionate expression of sorrow and grief over the sinful condition of our lives. Verse 9 says, Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. 
We hope for light and behold darkness and brightness, but we walk in gloom. We, we grope for the wall like a blind person. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before You, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities. Transgressing and denying the Lord and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled into public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The presence and the ugliness and the offense of our sin is undeniable. We cannot escape it. We cannot ignore it. Again, it is not a, a pretty picture. So what, what do we do? Well, Paul asked the same question and he gave the answer in Romans 7. And if you know the passage that I quoted earlier in Romans 7, you probably didn't like where I stopped. I stopped with verse 24. I stopped before the answer was given. Look again at verses 24 and 25. Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then myself, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So if we look at the last part of verse 15 through 17 of Isaiah 59, Isaiah points to what Paul just said. Isaiah tells us that a righteous king is needed. Verse 15 says, the Lord saw it, and it displeased Him that there was no justice. When he says there was no justice, he's describing everything that we read earlier about regarding Israel's sin, and in fact, our sin. When he says he saw no justice, the Lord is acknowledging how people did not order their lives in conformity to God's will. And this grieved his heart. And worse yet, verse 16 says, he, he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. This verse makes it crystal clear that sinful man cannot save themselves. Sinful man is spiritually bankrupt and spiritually unable to find a remedy for their sin. There is no hope for mankind if the solution to their problem lies within themselves. 
So what is the Lord to do? <laughs> Listen to verse 16. It continues, Then then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He puts on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So the Lord, the Lord Himself will act. When where man failed, God would intervene. And so the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of salvation point to what God Himself would do to send a righteous King to redeem His people. But also, the, the garments of vengeance and the cloak of zeal speak of the fiery judgment that He would bring to defend the honor and the glory of His great name. So this righteous King would bring redemption to those who have a contrite and lowly spirit over their own sin and who trust in the Lord. But this righteous King would also come to bring just judgment on those who cling to their sin and refuse to repent. And the good news for us this morning is that a righteous king has come and will come again. Verses 20 and 21 show us what happened in the first coming of Christ. But first, verses 18 and 19 show us what will happen in the second coming of Christ. Verse 18, according to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries, Repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. In other words, everywhere from the east to the west, all people, for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord dries. So at the second coming of our righteous king, he will judge all people. He sees. God, no, nothing escapes God. And all people, all people on this earth will give an account to God. But, so that will happen at the second coming. But at the first coming of Jesus, here, here's what He did, verse 20, and a Redeemer will come to Zion, or to God's people, to, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord, who, who turn from transgression. Verse 21, And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon them, my, my spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth, or out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. There's a little bit of light at the end of this dark passage. This is God's promise to those whom He redeems through Jesus. He says, My Spirit is upon you. Something that certainly found fulfillment in the day of Pentecost. And He says, My Word, My, my powerful, life-changing Word 
that I have put in your heart and mouth will never depart from you. That, that's a promise for you. And for all of you, your, for all of your offspring who in fact believe. So, this passage teaches us that there is no such thing as self-help. It is only God help. Our hope is what God does through Jesus by His Spirit. And we know of that only as it is revealed to us through His Word that He puts in our heart and mouth. Amen. Now, let me just make two primary points in our application, and then we'll be done. And I'll have a couple of subpoints for the second primary point as well. If you're here this morning and you are a believer, you are living by faith in Jesus, I urge you to join me in giving thanks to God for our justification. We, we have been justified by faith, not works. And because of that, we have peace with God. The guilt of our sin is gone. We stand in God's favor. We stand in His grace. That's a wonderful place to be. At, at the moment that we were brought from death to life by the Spirit, the, the moment where we repented and put our faith in Jesus Christ, we were at peace with God. And we stand in that position today by faith. That's a wonderful place to be. So if you're living by faith in Jesus this morning, be thankful to God for your justification. But secondly, if you're living by faith in Jesus, be thankful also for your progressive sanctification. Um, not just for your justification once and for all, but also that progressive becoming more and more Christ-like. The, the promise of progressive sanctification means that God is committed to helping you as a believer grow and change. You're not going to stay the same. It, you, there's going to be more and more of you that will look like the very person of Christ. God's committed to doing that work in your life. And if you think about that, in order for that to happen, it's necessary and good that your sin, sin in your life, is exposed. I mean, how else will you grow to look more Christ-like if the Spirit doesn't expose sin in your life? And if the Spirit is going to expose sin in your life, it's necessary that you have a, a heart that is willing to repent of that sin. Um, to, to, when the Spirit brings conviction of sin in your life, you repent of that and you turn from that and you run to Christ, thanking Him for the shed blood of Jesus that cleanses you of your sin once and for all, but you also are thankful that the Spirit of God is at work to change you so that you begin to live differently. It's, it's necessary then for you to have a heart. And I think this is one of the points I want to just drive home to you today. It's necessary for you as a believer to have a heart that's willing to look into the mirror of God's Word 
with a desire to say, God, help me to see the sin that you want to root out of my life. Give me a willingness to look honestly at the true condition of my heart so that I can, I can repent of sin, I can change and grow and become more of what you want me to be. Repenting it ought to be a normal part of a Christian's life. Um, Andrew started his scripture reading, uh, and he nailed it. This is not a fun text for any of us. But it's a necessary text for all of us. Because if, if we don't realize that God is committed to our progressive sanctification, we're going to be surprised when we're convicted of our sin. We're not going to like when the Spirit convicts us of our sin. We're going to want to minimize it. We're going to want to justify it. We're going to want to run away from that. But we shouldn't be surprised when we understand that the Spirit of God is committed to our progressive sanctification. To, to root out leftover stains and old patterns of sin in our life and we put that off and we put on corresponding truth in its place. So Ephesians 4 says, put off falsehood and begin to speak the truth. Put off stealing and begin to work with your hands so that you have something useful to give to others. Put off unwholesome words and put on words of grace that build up according to their needs. Put off bitterness and anger and unforgiveness and put on kindness and compassion and forgiveness. Put off sexual immorality. Put on thanksgiving to God. So the, the New Testament is full of instructions on how we change and grow. And as believers, we, we need to accept and understand and, and expect the Spirit of God to bring about change in our life. Now, let me just close with 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. I read it before, but this is encouraging. <laughs> this, this ought to give you hope. Now, may the God of peace sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. <laughs> we serve a faithful God, and He is at work in our life to sanctify us more and more. Praise Him for that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being a holy God. Thank You for Your love for us. And it's really Your love for us and really passion for Your own glory that You, you have sent Your Son to, to save us, to justify us, but to also progressively sanctify us. And so, Father, I pray that today we would be people who rest in the completed work of Christ knowing that we stand in Your favor, we stand in Your grace, but help us to also be a people who are teachable and moldable and we are responsive to Your Spirit's conviction. Give us willing hearts to look honestly 
Let, let Your Word speak honestly into our own life, into our own hearts. And we do pray that You would expose things in us that You want to grow and change. Give us a willingness. But Father, we're weak, and, and we know that in and of ourselves there's no hope, but we have great hope because You're faithful, You're powerful, Your Spirit dwells with us, and You promise that Your Word that You put in our hearts will never leave us. And so we, we ask You to complete that work and continue that work in us for our good and for Your glory. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.